Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome back to class, looking at the Lord's Supper from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, there's a lot of questions in this catechism. I think there's 195, and we're looking at question 171 this morning. Just one question this week, and uh, one that I think has quite a bit packed into it for us. Um, I'll read the question and uh, answer, and then pray for us. So the question asks, how are they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to prepare themselves before they come unto it? And the answer uh, confesses that they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are, before they come, to prepare themselves thereunto by examining themselves of their being in Christ, of their sins and wants, of the truth and measure of their knowledge, faith, repentance, love to God and the brethren, charity to all men, forgiving those that have done them wrong, of their desire after Christ, and of their new obedience, and by renewing the exercise of these graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you teach us from your word about this necessity of self-examination, that we would not be people who are ignorant of our weaknesses and our failings, who um, think themselves great like the Pharisees, when on the inside we are wanting. Lord, help us to have a proper self-conception, a proper humility before your throne, and would your word instruct us and help us as we seek to live lives pleasing to God, through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Alrighty, so the first part of this answer simply says that they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are before they come to prepare themselves thereunto by examining themselves. So this leads us to what we call the doctrine of self-examination. Right? A doctor might do an examination on a patient, but there's a sense in which we're supposed to do some sort of examination of ourselves as we're preparing to come to the Lord's Supper. And this connection between self-examination and the Lord's Supper is um, shown to us in the main passage we have on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. And so before we really jump into the catechism, I actually want us just to largely walk through uh, the passage itself that we might understand from the original context and um, situation what's, where this idea of self-examination is coming from and how it might look in our own lives. All right, so 1 Corinthians 11, 18 to 22 says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So right off the bat here, there's this idea that there are genuine ones, but might also be non-genuine ones. That is, disingenuous people in the congregation ones who are perhaps hypocrites or perhaps insincere in their faith. And an example of what this might look like, he says uh, in verse 20. He says, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. This is what was going on in the congregation. Uh, rich people in the congregation turning the Lord's Supper into their own self-indulgent feast, where they are getting drunk, eating, and others have nothing. And so instead of this being a unifying, 
mutual supper, it's one that is basically parading the self. It's um, um, emphasizing divisions in the congregation instead of their humility and unity. And Paul, when he's talking about this situation, this is what leads him then to talk about what the Lord's Supper actually is. So he says right after this, this is what's going on. But I taught you, the first thing I delivered to you was what Jesus taught us. And then he discusses what actually happened. And the point of him talking about the nature of the Lord's Supper is to remind the people that this is no ordinary feast. This is a sacred act of worship that we ought to be approaching with reverence and honor of God and not as a self-indulgent feast. It's a sacrament, an act of worship. And so then if we jump down to verse 27 there, we see then that whoever therefore, so after Paul talks about this, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so again, the unworthy manner here is this self-oriented pride, showboatiness, and lack of care for one another. So in this, it's a desecration of the sacrament. It's actually working against for what it symbolizes, that Christ died to unify a people to make them one with another and one with God. And so in that sense, it almost tramples the blood of Christ, counting it a vain thing. And so he continues into verse 28. Uh, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. So in light of this possibility of desecrating the sacrament by partaking of it in an unworthy manner, he says you need to first examine yourself and then eat. Now, I think it's just interesting uh, reading this to notice that he doesn't say examine yourself and then don't eat. Uh, He's not even really considering that a possibility. He says examine yourself and then eat. And uh, we often think uh, in the Lord's Supper that, you know, the examination could go 50-50. Maybe I eat, maybe I don't. But he says, no, examine yourself and then eat. And I think part of the reason for that is that the self-examination implies a a repentance. Um, It's the examining person that is the one who's in the process of repentance. Hypocrites don't examine themselves. The Pharisees didn't examine themselves. Those who are truly um, disingenuous in their faith, they usually have the blind spot such that they think they're fine. It's the ones that think they have no need to self-examine that are usually the ones in greatest danger. But he's saying here, examine yourself, which implies with the examination, examine so as to change and then eat. Examine yourself so as to not partake of the Lord's Supper in this way. Make sure you're not doing it and then eat of the Lord's Supper. The call is to a change of behavior. And so he says in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So he says the need here is to discern the body. And I think we can take this in a twofold manner. Uh, First, that is discerning the body of the Lord in the sacrament, really understanding that this bread and wine is meant to be unto us Christ himself, which means discerning the body implies having respect for the act of worship and the Christ whom we are representing in it. And so these people that were just kind of going about it glibly were not showing the honor due to Christ in the sacrament. But secondly, discerning the body means discerning that we are also a body, the body of Christ. We are one. 
we are unified, we ought to love one another, and therefore anything that's enhancing divisions is totally inappropriate for the reality that we are one body. No one greater than another. We're all part of the body of Christ. And so it's, uh, we don't want to be partaking frivolously, individually, selfishly, or for show. Right? That's what these rich people were doing. And a lot of this it was for show. Right? We can maybe think of examples of famous people or politicians who, in order to like, appease their demographic, they like, go to a church. It'll show them like, receiving the sacrament or something. And it's saying, see, like, I'm just like you guys. I've got this great religious self. And we don't want any disingenuous partaking of the supper. Verse 31, he says, But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So it's interesting, this self-examination, I'll get to you, Andrew, uh, is supposed to lead to a self-judgment. So just as a judge would examine the evidence and then render a judgment or a verdict, he says you should judge yourself. So you first examine, and then you say, okay, what's the verdict that needs to be rendered here? Am I out of alignment with the will of God? Am I not discerning the body? Am I dishonoring the unity I have with Christ? And either I might say, no, I judge myself that I believe I'm right in this. Or you might look at the evidence and say, actually, I am in the wrong, and therefore I need to change. Uh, yeah, question over there? Yeah, I think the, um, Andrew was asking about where Paul talks about not judging himself. I believe if I remember correctly, that's in one of the Corinthian letters. And I think the context there is um, people are accusing Paul of certain things. And he believes they are in error in how they're accusing him. And so he basically says, I don't even judge myself. And he goes on to say, I'm not even aware of anything against myself. Which I think actually implied that he examined himself and when he says he doesn't judge himself, I think he means I don't judge myself to be in the wrong in this matter. I, I, if I remember, that's how I would take that passage. If we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Um, you don't want to be saying I'm fine when you're really not. Uh, verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And he says that this discipline of the Lord might have even taken the form of being made sick or being ill. Now, we have to be careful that we, it's very difficult to ever attribute any particular sickness or illness to a misuse of the sacrament. And so we don't want to make errors of trying to make one-to-one -one correlations here. But I think it's helpful if we um, broaden that term discipline to understand it really as a form of discipleship. Discipline and discipleship are very interrelated words. And we readily recognize that every trial we undergo, whether sickness or otherwise, is a tool that the Lord uses to disciple us. And so whether that might be a, a discipline for something, uh, we, we don't exactly know, but we can see it all as God's useful discipling, disciplining of us that we might share in his holiness. But we want to make sure that we are not people who are desecrating any part of God's worship, and being liable to judgment in that. We want to humble ourselves under God's hand. Verse 33, here's the conclusion. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Okay, Acknowledge your mutuality. 
If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment, right? They want to please God in their worship, not displease him. This reminds us of the Old Testament and the minor prophets where God is often saying, yes, you're bringing your bulls and lambs for the offering, but I am not pleased by your offerings while there's injustice and oppression in your midst. It's the same thing here. God's saying, I'm not going to be pleased with your partaking of the Lord's Supper if you're doing it with divisiveness and a party spirit and divisions. Why would I want that? I want the worship with the love one to another. Um, The goal here is mutuality and others-centered love. And so we understand in this passage then that the particular self-examination at play was a discerning of the body, which meant acknowledging our unity, practicing it, and um, waiting for one another, discerning the sacredness of the sacrament. But I think it's appropriate here to say that we can move from this particular instance of self-examination in this particular context, and I think it's fitting to broaden that application to other areas of sin in our lives. So if you think the issue here was that they were breaking the second great commandment and not loving their neighbors well, they weren't loving their neighbors as their self, showing appropriate love one to another. And that can stand in for the whole second table of the law. Um, Any sin we have against other people is akin to this sort of sins against one another they were showing in the body. And therefore, it's appropriate to examine ourselves as to all manner of those horizontal relationships, whether we are truly loving our neighbors. But the other issue was that they weren't discerning Christ in the supper and the sacredness of the rite, which means they were in violation also of the third commandment. They were taking Christ's name in the sacrament in a vain way. And therefore, that stands in for the whole first table of the law, is that they weren't honoring God in the sacrament, which we can again broaden to say all sins against loving God, the first commandment, with our all, is also appropriate material for self-examination. Which basically means the call to self-examination in the supper can really be considered a broad, full-on life evaluation. And that's how this catechism answer takes it. It broadens the the specific application to a broader extent, and I think it is, uh, these writers were justified in making that move. Now, what does this envision for us? I don't think it envisions um, a church-wide official uh, examination period. I don't think we see that in scripture. It was common in Scottish Presbyterianism to turn times of communion into multi-week Uh, multi-day, all-day festivals where there was two weeks where you were doing specific examination tasks before coming to the supper. Uh, Paul seems to envision in this passage some sort of individual act where we are all making sure we're walking in right relationship with one another when we come to the sacrament. And so this seems to be a personal call, not some sort of official new churchly rite that we need to all be doing together. And really... um, This ought to be a continual process in our life. The Bible calls this watchfulness. Jesus says, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. We as Christians ought to be constantly aware, um, and aware as quickly as possible. If sin is starting to get a foothold in our life, we should be aware as quickly as possible if there's a fractured relationship, and always be ready every day to seek to remedy these deficiencies in our lives. Now, the weekly Lord's Day is a very fitting and appropriate time of self-examination. Every time we come together in corporate worship, 
is a reminder of the God we serve, who he is to us, what our duty is to him. And therefore, not only when we're having the Lord's Supper, but whenever we're coming to God in worship is a fitting time to remind us to look at our life and see if we are walking worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Now, because the Lord's Supper does have a particular horizontal relational element in it, um, more so than other acts of worship, it, I would say it is particularly fitting that at the Lord's Supper, we especially examine ourselves as to our horizontal relationships. But this is by no means something restricted or only to go with the Lord's Supper. Um, when We often use this verse of the Lord's Supper, but in Matthew, when Jesus says to leave your gift at the altar and be reconciled to your brother first, we often apply that to the Lord's Supper, but that was about um, an act of offering, a different act of worship. And we're called to this every week. So what would this self-examination look like? If we're going to partake of it, uh, we'll uh, run through each of these points in the catechism together. Alrighty, so they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are before they come to prepare themselves thereunto by examining themselves firstly, number one, of their being in Christ. Okay, this is obviously preeminent, that we are found in Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Do you not know your own selves that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates? And so a fitting question to ask is, am I trusting Christ? Am I resting in Christ alone for my salvation? Is my faith sincere? Now, I think people sometimes get up in a bit too much of knots of, is my faith genuine or sincere? I just find it helpful always to think of the opposite. Well, what would an insincere faith be? It's like, well, we know when we say insincere statements, right? Um, not that we're supposed to do this, but you know, you come up into that quandary with a spouse. It's like, oh, how does my new haircut look? And you say, oh, it looks good. Uh, perhaps it doesn't. And you know, you didn't really say it sincerely. You weren't really meaning it. And someone knows when they are saying, I believe Jesus is the son of God, and I believe he died for sinners like me. Um, it, it is more obvious than you probably think to know whether you're saying that falsely or truly. You know when someone's, you know, you're having a conversation on some maybe a political topic and everyone you kind of find out agrees with each other and you kind of don't agree, so you kind of go along with it just to kind of fit in and not make a scene. You know you're being a little insincere. In the same way, um, is your faith in Christ sincere or do you know yourself to be kind of going through the motions um, just to fit in, not really believing it yourself? Uh, secondly, they're to examine themselves of their sins and wants. So sins here, sins that we are committing, and wants here, sins that we are omitting, things that we are doing and not doing. And there's a really interesting tie-in to the Old Testament. In many ways, the Lord's Supper re reflects and um, replaces, uh, though replaces is too strong of a word, um, reflects and um, analogously corresponds to the Passover. Now, in the Passover, here's what they were told in Exodus 12, 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. So they were supposed to get rid of all leaven. And the leaven was supposed to remind them of Egypt. They were getting rid of the leaven because they had to leave Egypt in haste. So part of their ritual was getting rid of all specks of leaven from the house. 
And Paul picks up on this and says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Paul uses this physical image as a call for God's people to put away sin, saying Christ is the lamb who's been sacrificed. Therefore, the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of hypocrisy, the leaven of sin, you ought to be um, inspecting the house of your heart to get rid of all the leaven in the cupboard. Go into the back cupboards, go into the back corners and say, where is there leaven in my heart that I ought to be um, seeking to purge out? And he says, the reason you should do this is because you really are unleavened. That is, in Christ, you are sinless and pure in God's sight. And therefore, having that identity, we want to make our lived reality match that as much as possible. Try to live up to what we've already attained. Thirdly, to examine as to the truth and measure of their knowledge, faith, and repentance. So these two parts here, the truth of your knowledge, faith, and repentance, and the measure of it. So as to the truth of it, um, have I sincerely repented, believed, and sought to obey? But then also the measure. How strong is my faith and repentance right now? Um, Are they growing? Am I going in the right direction? Am I stronger than I was five years ago? These are good things to think about. Um, Often we can just be content to know, hey, I do know I believe in Christ, but think, is my faith growing? Or perhaps I'm backsliding, Perhaps I'm falling away from my first love and need to be brought to a renewed zeal and love for Jesus. Fourthly, uh, to examine as to your love to God and the brethren. Obviously, the great commandments here, love to God and others. Uh, 1 John, which is much about examining our own faith, the preeminent indicator John brings out again and again is our love of the brethren. And whether we're loving one another Um, not just in word, but in deed and in truth. This is an important um, aspect of our faith, whether we love one another enough to care for each other. And again, um, I've said this before, but I find it really helpful thinking of this uh, triple A definition of love, that love includes allegiance, action, and affection. Whether to God or others, we have an allegiance. We have a duty of care, a duty to stay committed and faithful to one another. It's allegiance, but it's action. It's actual care. It's actual deeds of help, actual words of encouragement. But then also affection, a felt um, care, a felt concern, a felt love for God and for one another. We want to be loving and seeing where that is in us. Fifthly, examining as to your charity to all men. So this is doing good to all, especially the household of faith, as Galatians 6 says. Uh, tells us we want to do good to all. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, to let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We ought to be people that are marked by a concern for mercy and justice, that what is wrong in this world would be being made right, and that we want to be a part of that, not just caring for ourselves and our own, but seeing that this world and the the small corner of the world that we have influence over, that we're making it a better place. Uh, sixthly, that's a hard word to say, hey? Sixthly, uh, examining themselves of their forgiving those that have done them wrong. We, don't we pray that in the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Uh, kind of a scary thing to pray when you think that you're saying, God, I want you to forgive me in the same way that I forgive other people. 
uh, we ought to be forgiving. Jesus talks about that parable, that the one who's been forgiven this great debt, um, how could he not forgive the people that wrong him this much lesser debt? And again, uh, it reminds us of that passage in Matthew 5 where he says, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave there your gift before the altar. Go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Uh, as we said earlier, acts of worship call for reconciliation. And it's really interesting when you pair this passage in Matthew 5 uh, to Matthew 18, where we talk about church discipline. In Matthew 18, it says, if you have something against your brother, go to them. Bring them their fault. Here it says, if you realize your brother has something against you, you go to them. So it's interesting. The onus is not on the person who's been wronged or on the person who's the wrongdoer to make it right. It's on the person who realizes there's a rift in the relationship. And therefore, you never have any excuse to not be one seeking to make things right. So it doesn't matter who has the hurt or who has the grudge. Reconciliation is more important than trying to get the order right. If you think someone has something against you, go to them. If you think that um, you have or know you have something against someone, go to them. Uh, we want to be walking in right relationship um, as we're told in Hebrews, um, as much as, or I don't know if it's Hebrews, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, right? Hebrews 12. So much as it depends on you, whatever you can do to be at peace with others, sometimes there's very little you can do. But as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Seventh, examining themselves of their desires after Christ. That true longing and love for Christ. As uh, Paul ends one of his letters, blessed be all who love the Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Jesus said in John 7, in the last day, the great day of the feast, he stood and cried, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. We want to be people thirsting for Christ, longing after Christ, and letting the supper remind us, um, am I cherishing this Savior that gave himself for me? Am I seeing Christ as that treasure in the field worth selling all to buy? Am I seeing Jesus as that pearl of great price who is worth it all? Um, the old Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane uh, used to comment on the Song of Songs saying uh, that there's no better test of a person's spirituality than whether or not they can feel themselves in the Song of Songs. The language in that letter speaking of Christ and the church is so affectionate so intimate, so close, that only someone that's truly known God can even find a connection point in that. In that, in that intimacy, um, the beloved's is um, mine and I am his. He has dove's eyes. He's the fairest of 10,000, um, the greatest of the sons of men. To know and love Jesus with that affectionate love is something we are called to and want to be growing in. And some might say, you know, they're more affectionate people than others, and that's fine. We are, our obedience to Christ might look different ways, but we want to, there ought to be some measure of this sort of affection for Jesus. Eighth, and of their, in, or their new obedience, right? As new creations, we walk in a new way, not in the ways of the world, not in the ways of the Gentiles, but we walk in the way of Jesus in what Paul calls a new obedience, and elsewhere in the confession, it talks about an endeavoring obedience. And I find that phrase really helpful. 
Um, not is my obedience perfect, but am I endeavoring to be obedient? Is it the habit of my life that I want to be more obedient to Christ? That I want to be more faithful to his ways, more committed to his purposes? Examining as to your obedience. And lastly, ninth, by renew, uh, examining oneself by the renewing the exercise of these graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer. Uh, word and prayer, the two great acts of worship, being a part of our lives to help sustain and grow each of these other qualities. The meditation talked about in Psalm 1, in Joshua 1, in Psalm 119, of chewing over the word of God, bringing it deep into our hearts that it might affect our beliefs and our behaviors. And then fervent prayer. Um, what a mark of our life, whether we actually pray. Nothing better shows our humility and dependence before God as to whether or not we depend on him in prayer. And not just perfunctory prayer, but here, fervent prayer. Prayer that is really reaching and storming the gates of heaven. That's what we're seeking after and desiring. And in each of these things, it is not seeing whether the measure of each of them is as strong as can be. No, it's seeing whether we know something of them, whether we see the person pictured here, something of ourselves, even if it's just a level one out of ten. Um, and sometimes in different seasons of life, different marks of these might be more evident to us, sometimes less evident. Uh, but one of my old professors used to talk about these different marks in relation to our assurance, like um, different beads on a necklace, where um, sometimes you only grasp hold of one, but if you pull it and you see it's there, um, the other ones are coming along with it. Um, we're not going to always have such a full-orbed view of our life. But it's fitting, as part of the Christian life, to, examining, to be examining ourselves frequently, um, to just be reminded, because we so quickly slip away and forget about the things we've committed to, to just be reminded, right, I do want to be showing Christ affection and fervent prayer. Right, I do want to be living in a way of new obedience. Where is my life out of line? How can I bring myself into a closer walk to God, depending on God's spirit for his help in it? Um, often, what we don't analyze, we don't change. Even in business, they talk about, unless you're actually analyzing the metrics of your business, um, you never end up changing because you don't really know what needs to change. You just go with the status quo. So with our lives, we stick with the status quo until we really dig in and think, Maybe this part of my life is out of the line. Maybe these relationships are out of whack, and there is something I can do. Um, what you don't measure, you don't change. And so to be measuring ourselves by these standards is not something for guilt. It's something for encouragement and inducement to a better walk with Christ, which is for our own good and joy, right? All of these are diagnoses of the symptoms of sin in our life. And just as if you realize something in your physical health is ailing you, you want to deal with it, get it fixed, get it removed. And so to be able to realize that we have, um, might have very specific ailments spiritually, to be able to seek God for the healing of those is for our good and our flourishing. Therefore, this self-examination is not this dourness, woe is me um, search, it's a where are the opportunities for greater joy in my life and greater conformity to Christ. So this is a good thing, and it's a gift to us, not a pain. And so if we were going to quickly summarize these nine things, I'm looking at them one by one, we're looking at our trust. Am I resting in Christ? 
We're looking at our sin. Where am I walking contrary to God's law? We're looking at repentance. Am I seeking to turn from sin unto God? Love. Am I pursuing the two great commandments? Goodness. Am I seeking to do good to all? Forgiveness. Am I forgiving those who've wronged me? Passion. Am I desiring and delighting in Christ? Obedience. Am I walking in an endeavoring obedience? And worship. Am I diligently using the means of grace, word, and prayer? And uh, if I was to condense these into kind of four broad categories, they would be these. Considering your faith, how is my faith in Christ? Considering your repentance, am I repenting from my sin? How's your love? Am I seeking to love others well? For worship, am I worshiping God? And if I was to condense even further, down to only three things that I hope you will be able to remember the next time we have the Lord's Supper, is to just think of your three great relationships. How is my relationship with God How's my relationship with others? How's my relationship with myself? In Titus 2.12, he says that the grace of God trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Self-controlled, our relationship with self, refraining, resisting, repenting for sin. Uprightness is practicing justice towards others and love. Godliness, thinking about God, knowing God, loving God. How is my relationship with myself and my sin? Am I fighting it? Am I moving away from it? How's my relationship with others? Am I loving people in my life and doing my duty to them? My relationship with God, am I worshiping him? Am I loving him, praying to him? These are the ways that we can examine ourselves and, pre- and be prepared for when we come to the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is a habit we want to get into in general in the Christian life. Um, anyone have any questions or comments or things they want to add to this discussion? Yeah, Andrew was asking about the tie-in between examination and frequency. So I'll probably, uh, we had a question about frequency last week. Um, I'll give you some thoughts on it. So uh, we, we don't have that much biblical data on the frequency of the Lord's Supper. In Acts 2, we see that they were partaking in the breaking of bread every day from house to house. It is uncertain whether that is the Lord's Supper or regular meals. Uh, the strongest point of data we have is in Acts 20, I believe it's verse 8, where it says, on the first day of the week, when the believers were gathered together to break bread, Paul came and visited them. It seems to be from that verse that their habit was to break bread on the first day of the week. That is, to partake of the Lord's Supper every week. That's not airtight because you could argue that that's saying, when they were gathered together on this particular first day of the week to break bread on this particular day. It doesn't necessitate that they were doing it every week, though the grammar uh, leads to the idea that they were doing it every week a a little more strongly than to argue against that. Um, In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, do this in remembrance of me. It seems to be there's, um, and as often as you do it, it seems to be um, something of an often thing. So the data of the New Testament, the example seems to lean towards a very frequent partaking of the Lord's Supper, most likely every week. Um, So the question is, why did a tradition develop where it was not partaken of every week? Um, 
this was done for two primary reasons. The second reason, this is actually the lesser reason, is this very topic, this idea of self-examination, that it need to, needed to be so thorough and so in-depth that there's no way you could ever do this every week. It would take up your whole week, basically. And I hope from our discussion that we see that it is better to be living in this sort of examination of self every week, to be waiting every other month or every few months to say, oh, now is my time to check whether I'm right with God. Um, I think one puts almost even more pressure on ourselves in a negative way and more pressure on the supper to be this extra special super spiritual event as opposed to an ordinary means of grace, which is an ordinary help to us, helping us in a repetitive manner to be walking before God in joy. Um, the main reason why the Lord's Supper was not historically partaken of um, at this frequency, um, which actually really developed post-Reformation, uh, John Calvin, they had the Lord's Supper every day at his church. His idea was that we'd actually having ch be having church services every single morning where we took the Lord's Supper. But uh, it came from uh, the theology of how does the Lord's Supper relate to the Old Testament? Uh, we recognize that baptism in many ways mirrors circumcision. So their thought was, what Old Testament rite does the Lord's Supper um, most clearly reflect? So some answered this question saying it only replaces the Passover. And these churches only celebrated the Lord's Supper once a year. This was common in Scotland. Once a year because they said it reflected the annual Passover fest. Others said, no, it reflects all the feasts. There were three or four, depending on um, the period in redemptive history, three or four feasts that the Jews celebrated throughout the year. So they said, well, these replace those feasts, and it's a seasonal rite. Therefore, we should be partaking of it quarterly or thirdly in the year, reflecting its tie into the Jewish feasts, and we should make it a one or two week long sort of feast and season. Others, um, this is largely in the Baptist tradition, they argued that the Lord's Supper replaces the New Moon Festival, which is a once-a-month thing where the Jews had an extra big worship service on the New Moon. In Isaiah 66, it says, um, prophesying of the church age from um, Sabbath to Sabbath and New Moon to New Moon, my people will worship me. And so Matthew Henry said, well, there's something that's a New Moon to New Moon sort of worship. That's probably the Lord's Supper. Therefore, we will do the Lord's Supper monthly. That's why that monthly tradition developed. Um, I think it's more appropriate that the Lord's Supper um, more just mirrors the sacrificial system in general with a particular tie into the Passover. And I do think the data points towards celebrating it weekly, which would be my conviction. Um, not every worship service, but once a week, uh, perhaps in the evening, reflecting the supper the Lord had. But uh, there's no hard biblical rule about it. And it's a matter of study and debate and freedom for different churches. We don't want to elevate the supper above the word. It's subordinate to the word. The word should always have precedence. And so if we're maintaining that proper distinction, I don't see any reason why it can't be a great blessing and a great help to enjoy it every week and be in that process of examination. So anyways, we're over time. Um, let me pray quick and we'll head out. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving him for us. Thank you for that Passover lamb that is sacrificed for the forgiveness of all our sins. Would you help us to walk uprightly before you? Search our hearts, O Lord, and know us as David prayed to see whether there's any evil way in us and then lead us in the way everlasting. Bring us to true repentance and faith and help us enjoy life in your kingdom with love towards you and one another. In Jesus' name, amen.